Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome to Habits for Happiness, the show where we discuss habits you can employ in your daily life to make you happier. Here on Habits for Happiness today to talk about the habit of how we talk to ourselves with compassion rather than criticism and how we can talk to ourselves to be our own best friends is best-selling author, Dr. Kristen Neff. Welcome, Dr. Neff. Oh, thank you for having me, lady. Very happy to be here. Welcome. And I just want to introduce you. You have a beautiful bio and it's long, so I won't give all of it. But the high points is Dr. Neff received her doctorate from the University of California, Berkeley, and is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. And in addition to many famous talks and books, she is the best-selling author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And she's also the best-selling author of Fear, Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up claim their power and thrive. And in conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which you guys call MSC, am I right? Yes. Yes. And is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. And they co-authored the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, as well as teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, a guide for professionals. Dr. Neff is also co-founder of the Nonprofit Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And just so you know, Dr. Neff, I found you um, about eight, I think it was eight years ago. There was like an online course you did with Brene Brown that I took. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I have to like go back and look at what, when the day, what date of that was, but it had to be like six or seven years ago. It was ago. a while ago, yeah. <laughs> and it was like changing. So famous. So she could. <laughs> You can show time for people like me. (laughs) Well, it was, you know, it was pivotal for me and my ability to change the bully in my head, or at least quiet the bully in my head. So, so thank you for being here. Um, um, It's an honor, truly. Well, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And so I guess my first question, and it is really for everyone is, you know, obviously you've written a lot about self-compassion. And so it makes sense that you would choose this habit because everybody talks about a habit that's important to them. But like when you started out, um, why did you choose self-compassion as the focus of your work, your life's work? Uh, well, because I, I needed it myself. Yeah. So I, I learned about, I didn't come up with the idea. I actually I learned about self-compassion when I was learned mindfulness meditation and it was a really stressful period in my life. It was actually when I was finishing up my PhD and I was, I was kind of a mess. I was a bit of a basket case and I wanted to find some way to reduce my stress. And I learned mindfulness meditation was good for stress. Um, and the meditation course I took was taught in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, is mm-hmm. a, a, a famous Zen master who always emphasized the importance of turning the lens of compassion inward as well as outward. Um, and so I tried it. I tried being kinder and more supportive toward myself. Um, and I was just amazed at the immediate difference it had in my ability to cope, you know, and it didn't make me lazy or complacent. It just, it just, I started motivating myself with encouragement as opposed to you better do this. You better shape up or ship out, you know? <laughs> um, and I was just, I was just really struck by, um, the effectiveness of the practice, you know, it took a while to figure out mindfulness meditation. Right. Being friendly to myself, for me anyway, came much more quickly. And then so when I got a job at UT Austin, um, I thought I wanted to do research on it. And um, I had actually had some experience researching self-esteem in Mm -hmm. in some postdoc work and realized it was the perfect alternative to self-esteem. So they're both in a way you might say a sense of worthiness. You know, you're worthy of compassion. But the worthiness that comes from compassion is just because you're a flawed human being deserving of kindness like every other human being, where self-esteem is about being special and above average, about achieving, about, you know, success rather than failure. So um, what the research showed and what I found in my own life was it was a much more stable and really a healthier source of self-worth than judging and evaluating yourself positively, which most people's self-esteem comes from. So that also spurred me to do it because in psychology, there was a big movement kind of questioning self-esteem. Is it mm-hmm. all it out to be? And so my first paper actually was framed self-compassion, a healthier alternative to self-esteem. That's also partly why I started researching it. 
um, to contrast it with self-esteem. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm a coach as my day job, and I coach everyone from CEOs to, you know, housewives, you know, the whole spectrum. And and as we dig deep in our sessions, pretty much everybody's core underlying limiting belief is that they're not enough. I mean, no matter who you are. Yes, right? that's right. And and by the way, with self-esteem, you'll never be enough because there's always someone who's going to do it better. There's always mm-hmm. that little bit better you can do. We're human. So by design, we're, you know, by definition, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fail. That's why in a way, self-esteem is a treadmill you can never get off of. And it's always like this carrot dangling slightly out of your reach. Yeah. And some people use that as a motivator. They either use the carrot of self-esteem or the whip of self-criticism. Mm-hmm. But another way to motivate yourself is through care. Like the way hopefully we motivate our children. You know, we love our children unconditionally, whether they succeed or fail. But if we care about them, we want to we get them tutoring, we try to get them good, you know, education, we try to help them, we support them. We say we believe in you. When they fall down, we're there for them to help them get back up again. I mean, that type of support and warmth and encouragement. And by the way, it's not sugarcoating. It's not saying, oh, you're doing fine when maybe you aren't doing fine. I mean, it's, a, it's the difference between you're okay, even though maybe your achievements or your behaviors you'd like to improve. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it occurred to me, um, you know, I've read your book actually many times, but I re-listened to Self-Compassion this week. And you know, I'd also interviewed Marcy Shimoff, who wrote um, Happy for No Reason. And she talked a lot about in the show and this idea of like us facing outward or facing inward. Yes. Right. And this idea that I love so much is that when you talked about self-esteem in your work, it's sort of like it's this external validation, right? So that we we will always be disappointed and fall into that cycle. But self-compassion is very inward and it's it's self-resourcing in a way that we're not taught usually as children. I mean, you're teaching children now, which is so beautiful, but yeah. but it's not something that we're taught usually unless we have parents who, you know, or you maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's something that's not taught. And that's because, uh, well, there's actually a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, I think, is evolutionarily, it's actually doesn't come completely naturally to us. Right. Self-criticism is actually, believe it or not, a bit more natural evolutionarily because when, when we see something about ourselves we don't like, or we fail or make a mistake, we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. We mm-hmm. get threatened. So we fight ourselves with self-criticism, or like we flee in this, or isolate ourselves in the sense of shame, or we freeze and ruminate and get stuck. And these are all natural safety behaviors. Now, when your best friend has something happen, you aren't actually personally threatened, and therefore you can rely on your other safe evolved system, which is the care system. This is a system that evolved more for other group members or for family members, where we use warmth, support, nurturing to help people feel safe, but it's more, more evolved for other people, not so much ourselves. So it is a little unnatural. You might say it's actually not difficult, but it doesn't come instinctually. It is a habit we need to develop, which actually right. we developed. Um, so there's that. And then also society, you know, we confuse self-compassion with selfishness or self-pity or complacency. We don't really understand what self-compassion is. And that there's a lot of really strong cultural blocks to self-compassion. And what the research shows is when you explain to people, well, it's not true. It's not selfish. You're just including yourself in the circle of compassion. You're actually connecting to others in your shared humanity. And it's not complacent. You actually motivate yourself, but out of encouragement as opposed to harshness. You know, And it's, it's um, not self-indulgent because if you care about yourself, you're going to want to be healthy. So once you break it down and kind of explain it, then people can access self-compassion much more readily. Yeah. yeah. But, but our culture has given us these bucks. I have to say there's a little bit of intentionality. I don't know if culture can be intentional, but it's a way we've tried to control people. We've tried to control our kids or control people by saying, you need to do this, otherwise you're not worthy. You need to buy our products or you need to achieve. Um you know, if you come, if you have a society where everyone's unconditionally worthy, then you got to kind of try to change your structure a little bit. And that's not the way that the, the structures work so far. Yeah. So it's, for, it's interesting to think about, right? So in a way, self-compassion is kind of a Countercultural. <laughs> Countercultural. Yeah. Because it's saying, you know, I'm intrinsically worthy, regardless of whether I, su- I succeed or fail. I would like to succeed because I want to be happy. It's all about, because, you know, what makes me happy Versus what you say I need to do to be good enough. Yeah. And I love this idea of I'm worthy no matter because yes. I exist. Right. Just and 
and all human beings are worthy. Yeah. And you talk about in your work that, you know, self-compassion is sort of the doorway to our own happiness, right? And so like, you know, the reason why I have this show is that people, you know, I want people to know that our happiness lies within us and we're looking for it out there, but it's, it's not out there. It's in here. And, and and as you well know, the ancients have been telling us this for thousands of years and for whatever reason, especially in the past 150 years, we've really failed to listen. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one way of thinking of it is, you know, you can kind of break it down into um, what we're aware of and awareness itself. So what we're aware of, whether it's internal or external, you know, thoughts, emotions, experiences, success, we we use these things to make us happy. So what self-compassion does, talk about radical, is you start to shift your frame of what makes you happy from what's happening are you getting it right? Are you mm-hmm. getting it wrong? Or are things going the way you'd like them to go? Are you thinking the thoughts you'd like to think? You start resting your, um, or you might say finding your source of fulfillment and happiness in the quality of awareness that you're using to relate to what's happening. Wow. Are you feeling kind? Are you feeling connected? Are you present? Right? So even when something's kind of painful, and yeah, so the what's happening isn't making you happy. But I've had moments where, when I really opened my heart to myself and just said, you know, this is so hard, Kristen, and just kind of with, with the presence, with warmth, with the sense of, you know, it's hard for everyone. You aren't, you know, I feel really connected to everyone else in the world. That is a source of happiness. That's why self-compassion, even though by definition, the word passion in Latin means to suffer. It's how are we with our suffering, right? Even though it's aimed directly at suffering, it actually is linked to greater happiness. Because when we deal with our suffering in this in this healthy way, this connected way, this present way, this kind way, that itself is a source of happiness. And that's yeah. why it's equally strongly linked to increased positive mind states and decreased negative mind states. It's really yeah. remarkable if you think about it. It is remarkable. And I think it's interesting because like, you know, as um as animals, you know, we're wired to, you know, go towards pleasure and away from pain. Yes. Right. And so our, our our sort of natural instinctual reaction is to press down the pain yes. and not realize that our pain is what actually our, our shared suffering is what makes us human. That's right. Yeah. And of course, it's not like we seek out pain and we do try to, you know, c- compassion is about concern with the alleviation of suffering. So, of course, you know, we're, we're always motivated to try to make things better so that it's not as much suffering for ourselves and others. Um, but there's only so much we can do. Like they say pain is inevitable, suffering is optional in the sense of things are going to be difficult. But how if we if we fight what is, if we suppress it, if we judge ourselves or others or, or lives and it shouldn't be this way, then it actually just makes it worse. Yeah. So compassion is a way of, you know, relating to what's happening, the tough stuff in a kind and supportive way. And that immediately makes it better. Think of a time you've had when maybe you're upset about something and you went to a friend and your friend just very lovingly put their arm on your shoulder or something like that and said, I'm so sorry. There's a certain sweetness in that. You know, again, not that you're going to choose to seek out those difficult situations, but you learn to derive your happiness from the love that's holding the pain as opposed to making your experience pain-free, which is, you know, good luck with that one. You probably guess, <laughs> but, you know, let me know when you've achieved that, right? Yeah, totally. And so, you know, for listeners who who may understand like logically this concept, right? So, you know, so many of my coaching clients come to me trying to drop the behavior of self, the inner critic. I mean, yeah. they're just like, oh my gosh. And I always sort of say, which I think, I believe I learned in your course um, is that if we met our inner critic on the street, like we would not be friends with that person. <laughs> like we would be like, please go away. You are not someone I'd be friends with. But how, how well, do but we? We, <laughs> well, we have to befriend it, right? Yes, so, right. First of all, it's natural. I mean, this is the thing. It's not like you're the only one with an inner critic. I think there is a biological origin to it. Again, it comes from mm. the threat defense system. This part of us is scared, wants us to be well, and thinks that the way to do it is to control your behavior by being a bully, right? Yeah. Or um, by pointing out a danger in the only language it knows how, which is like, you, uh, you know, watch out. You're going to, you're going to. Totally. I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 it's intentions it, it, to keep us safe. 
It is. And that's why we need to think it. So an exercise we do in our course, we actually explore, well, how is it trying to keep us safe? Even though it just, it's not very effective, actually keeping us, it's not nearly as effective as self-compassion and keeping us safe. But, you know, this is a, an evolved part of us, kind of an older part of the brain using the only way it knows how. So we kind of learned, well, how is it trying to help me? Thank you. You know, and sometimes it has some useful information. You know, constructive criticism is right. good. Just that you are a worthless failure. That's not so helpful. <laughs> about the behavior, what's not I'm working? Not sure that's, actually, that's actually <laughs> useful, you know. And so the bully we, in my head's even meaner. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, and we do sometimes need to be straw boundaries and stand up to this part of ourselves as well. It's not that that's, there's, that's not a place for it. There is. But we don't want to like cut off and alienate any part of ourself because these parts have all evolved for a reason. And usually the reason of safety, that's how things work. Um, yeah. So we kind of befriend it, thank it, but also make room for another voice, a voice that comes out a little more naturally with other people, right? So mm. I think best friends is the best context because our children, you know, sometimes <laughs> our, or our spouses, we're kind of so stuck with them. But a friend kind of by definition is someone... A mutually supported relationship. And if you stop being that way, they're probably going to stop being your friend. So it's a really good context for what it looks like, a supportive relationship. And you probably wouldn't say to your friend to try to motivate them, you stupid fat slob or whatever. <laughs> no, sorry. So, sorry for using that term. I didn't mean to. No, it's totally well, no, it's, it's actually not okay. I really you've met the you've met the you've met the voice in my head, I think. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, that's because that's a slur. I don't want to repeat yeah. a slur, yeah. but just to show how like how embedded that is in our, our of course. Of course. Kind of like mean, hurtful slurs. And I apologize if anyone's hurt by it, because it is a slur. And we use these mean, hurtful slurs with ourselves. You know, hopefully you wouldn't say that to a friend you cared about. No, right? you wouldn't have any friends. Right. And you would be supportive. And what do you need? And how can I help? And you know, and you're and you're worthy just the way you are. And you know, if your friend wanted to make some changes, you would say, Okay, great, how can I help? You know, hopefully, ideally. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, um, you know, that's hopefully the language we can learn again, but it is that. So I, I love the fact that you focus on habit formation because it's not totally instinctual. We it's have not to form the habit, but we can, that's the good news. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about the how, because I'm yeah. sure we have listeners who are like, okay, I identify, I've got a, I've got the bully in my head. I've, I've, I've met the inner compassionate person, but you know, it's almost like, I, I don't know. I grew up with Tom and Jerry episodes. I'm dating myself yeah. where they had like the, the angel and the devil yes, on your shoulders, yeah. like yeah. having a war. And sometimes I will like actually watch my, the two voices in my head, like kind of go yeah. at it. And I think, you know, that become the observer. But for for the average listener, someone who's yeah. listening, who wants to employ a habit of creating more self-compassion, how do they start? Yeah, well, so there's this, you know, that's the great thing is there's a lot of pedagogy around this. Chris, Chris Germer and I, for the last 10 years, have been developing practices and exercises that, again, as you say, are empirically supported to show to actually change the way people relate to themselves. So there's a lot of things from a very simple standpoint, what you could do is just Think about what you just said to yourself and what I say that to a friend. And mm. you, wouldn't, you might even think, what would be the effect on my friend if I said that? And knowing that that's the same effect you would have on yourself, right? So you can, you, well, you know, you can try, what would I say to a friend? How would I say it? So that's, that's a very simple thing to do. It just takes remembering and just pausing to, to reframe it. Um, yeah. By the way, when you first do this, it feels fake or phony. Um, but mm-hmm. only because we just aren't used to doing it with our, ourselves. Uh, and also, we, again, we aren't saying, this very, people get very confused. We aren't saying that our behaviors are fine. They may not be. Yeah. Our situation is fine. It may need some change, but we're fine. I actually talk about this as, as tender and fierce self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Tender self-compassion is about accepting ourselves unconditionally, accepting the fact that our, we have difficult emotions. Can we be with those as they are? Pure self-compassion is about making the changes we need to make to be happy, which may be to our own behaviors, you know, motivating change, maybe to other people's behaviors, drawing boundaries, saying no, mm-hmm. situations that aren't healthy, a relationship, a job, if it's toxic, then maybe the most self-compassionate thing to do is to get out of it. You know, so it's really about acceptance and change. The acceptance is more about acceptance of ourselves the change is one of the behaviors and situations that are that are contributing to suffering. 
And you yeah. can do both at the same time because the, the target's a little bit different. Right. Well, yeah, one's I think one's internal and one's a little bit external. It's sort of like, you know, being kind to ourselves and then being able to understand from that framework what boundaries and what our tolerance level is for the things that affect us in right. our lives. But sometimes right. internal as well. Like so what we're doing is we're changing the the behavior of self-criticism. Mm-hmm. So the self-criticism isn't who we really are. Yeah. Right. It's the behavior that's been conditioned by society and also by evolution. We can't blame just we can't yes, just blame yes. our parents or middle school. <laughs> they're con- middle they're school convenient people. target. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also evolution, right? So yeah. all these systems are evolved, you know, the our ancestors who are self-critical and threat focused were more likely to survive than those who are just, you know, more happy content. That's just, you know, that's the way evolution works. It's all about survival. So um learning to yeah, accept ourselves, but also to just really think about what behaviors need to change. And, and here's the thing, the more we accept ourselves, uh, Carl Rogers famously said this, the more we accept ourselves, the more we can change because it actually makes it safer to see clearly those behaviors that need to change. Yeah. Right? If you're all about protecting your self-esteem, you're going to say, oh, yeah, that, that's fine what I did or what I said. Maybe it really wasn't. Or, you know, so here's a good example. We just uh, developed a self-compassion course for high-level collegiate athletes. They need to be the best. You know, second best, they need, you know. There's no room for error here. There's no room for error. Yes. What we found is when they started being compassionate about, like, their mistakes in sports, or if they had a bad training day or, you know, lost a game or something, that it was just really focused on, oh, that's okay, that happens. You know, just because I made a mistake doesn't mean I'm a bad athlete or I'm a failure. How can I support myself to, to think, okay, well, how can I improve? So again, we kind of disentangling their sense of self-worth from their performance. Yeah. Right? So they were unconditionally worthy as people, even though, yeah, of course they want to improve their performance. That's what they do. They're collegiate. You know, yes, I mean, this athlete. is their output. Yes. And here's what we found. Both coach-rated and self-rated performance improved after learning self-compassion. So it doesn't like let you off the hook. It doesn't make you go easy on yourself. You're really just changing the, the, the source of the motivation for improvement in a way that's actually more conducive because performance anxiety, which anxiety gets generated. If you know that if you, if you miss that shot, you can like hang your head in shame. That's going to make you more anxious than if you say, okay, well, I'm going to try to get the shot. If I were to miss it, well, it doesn't mean I'm, you know, bad person. Then you're going to be more calm as you try to make that shot and shot and more likely to make it. Yes. No, totally. Undermines I mean, your performance, right? And fear of failure undermines risk-taking, which is a counterproductive to motivation. So people get it totally wrong. They really think self-criticism is effective. It kind of works, but it also has a lot of downsides like anxiety, fear of failure. Self-compassion is much more effective, but it's not a whitewash. It's not just saying, oh, everything's fine. You you know, you are good enough, but your performance may not be good enough. You know? Yes. Yes. And, and it may be okay, your performance. You know, if, if you don't need your performance to be a certain level to be happy or successful, then maybe you don't have to, you know, beat yourself up to be absolutely perfect. But if you're like at a really high level position and it's important to your happiness to be the best you can, then you're going to focus your energy on that. But again, at no point is your worthiness as a human being contingent on success. That's the key difference. Yeah. And I love this because there's also this sort of data that shows that, you know, um, athletes, when they're going on like exhibition type of, uh, you know, like you see gymnasts that like do like the perfect 10 tour after they do like these amazing performances because they're not in a judgment mode, right? They're just in showing like their flow and yeah, they're just being like, you know, it's almost like watching like the Harlem Globetrotters. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they're still around, but, 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 you know, but, but this idea of, of being able to perform just because we are worthy. And on that note, we are going to go to break, but I do want to just let everybody know when we come back, I want to talk about the the relationship between self-compassion and forgiveness, because I find that self-compassion, at least for myself, was so freeing. And I also find that forgiveness is freeing. And also some of the hardest things we can do, especially as women, um, in our lives. So, so everybody hang tight and we'll be back in a couple minutes. So thanks so much. And we'll see you soon.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Try out a free coaching session with your host, Lady Fuller, to learn more about our individualized and corporate coaching programs. Learn to drop bad habits and pick up healthier habits to live a healthier life. Email her at lady at happinessmba.com. That's L-A-D-Y at happinessmba.com. Or check out our coaching business at habits, the letter for happiness.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Want to reward clients, customers, or employees with a gift that will blow their socks off? We at International Gifting Company have your next corporate event covered. We carry 250 personalized gifts for on-site incentive events. Or we can create virtual gift boxes your employees and clients can receive at home. Contact us today for a quick and free proposal. We love to wow! Contact info at intlgiftingco.com or check out our webpage at intlgiftingco.com. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Habits for Happiness. To reach the show today, call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now, back to our program, and here again is Lady Fuller. And we are back to Habits for Happiness. Thanks, everyone, for hanging in there. We're here with Dr. Kristen Neff talking about the beautiful habit of self-compassion. And um, Kristen, I would love to talk first before we talk about forgiveness, about one of my favorite, favorite topics that is about stories. So, you know, the stories, the mental construct in our heads is what sort of holds us back, in my opinion, this is, of course, only my opinion, from being kind to ourselves. And I like to tell my clients, and I don't know if this is based in data, but like 90% of the stories in our heads are not true. I always say like most of the shit you make up is not true. And I'm sorry for cursing, but it isn't, right? And so my question is, how does self-compassion dismantle the stories in our heads? Yeah, so um, again, by shifting the focus, right? Because often the stories in our heads are about, you know, are we good enough? Or um, are we safe? Or, you know, what, what, trying to understand things cognitively. And actually, self-compassion is less of a cognitive process, although, of course, there is some thought. And it's actually more of a heart opening. We, mm-hmm. we often say in self-compassion te- uh, teaching, see if you can drop out of your head into your body. It's more of an embodied practice where we're actually feeling the warmth. Right. You can't really think warmth. <laughs> you can no. think of good enough, am I whatever, but feeling the warmth. Um, and so that's one way to help dismantle the stories is by just uh, kind of intentionally dropping into your body. You know, we really encourage, for instance, touch as a way to communicate compassion. I mean, the words are also helpful, but touch, because actually as human beings, we evolved to interpret touch as the main signal of care. First two years of life, babies don't have language. All the communication yeah, is done through touch. And our bodies are designed, our, our physiology, our skin is, is designed to respond to caring touch. So we write, try to encourage people to use touch, to get into their body, um, and to try not to think so much, again, of the content of the storyline, and just feel the warmth, feel that sense of... Uh, so there's actually three components of self-compassion. There's mindfulness, is a sense of connectedness, common humanity, and then the kindness. And one way of describing that is loving, connected presence. So when we're in a state of self-compassion, we're in a state of loving, connected presence. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of 
that's not really about a storyline, right? We have that loving, connected presence to whatever is happening, positive, negative, or neutral. Right? And yeah. so that's one. That's one way to, to try to disengage. I love uh, that. We have a lot of practices where, where, where that help. You have yeah, to and practices, I, not natural. Like I said, it's not. It's, it's not natural. No, not and natural. and. Let's talk about forgiveness because this is a topic that I encounter. I run a women's group and we get to the end of the course and we we broach this topic and we have to, you know, I tell people, they're like, why is this part of the course? And I said, well, it's part of the course because if we don't cross this hurdle, we can ever, never actually have an open heart, right? Our, Our heart needs to be open in order for us to feel the joy and happiness. And you write a lot about this. Yeah. Um, and so Tell me about how self-compassion can lead to forgiveness or what's the relationship there between both? Yeah. And I think both self-forgiveness and other forgiveness, both are equal. So self-compassion, I would say, um, is part of forgiveness. Forgiveness is actually might be one step further. So if you define forgiveness and people define it different ways, but as letting go of any sort of resentment or, um, you know, uh, letting go of some of the emotions of, yeah, resentment, bitterness, it might be there. You need you need to feel the pain before you get to forgiveness. Unfortunately, a lot of people may use forgiveness as a type of spiritual bypass. I'm just yeah. going to forgive that person because I don't want to feel the uncomfortable feelings. Or you have to be ready. Yeah, no, I know this. <laughs> I'm going to forgive myself because I just don't really want to think about it anymore. So self-compassion, it's a step on the road to self-forgiveness, but self-forgiveness is kind of a further step. And sometimes we're never, we may never get there, right? It, it, sometimes some, some hurts are just so big that we may never be at the point where we're ready to forgive, but we can hold the pain. You have to hold the pain with compassion before you can forgive. Mm. Right? You can't miss the step of compassion for the pain. So for ourselves, it's compassion for the pain. You have to, you have to Feel the pain that we've caused others. You can't forgive yourself without first, like, really taking it in. Wow, I really hurt that person. And feeling the incredible pain of that. Um, Or with other people, you have to take in the pain of the hurt they've caused you. You know, you you can't use forgiveness just to avoid the pain. you got to feel the pain. And the, the, the only really safe way to feel the pain is in kind of the warm, supportive stance when you're holding your pain with self compassion. So there's self-compassion and there's also really important, um, and this is part of compassion, again, technically is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So the fear self-compassion part of it is a commitment not to let the harm be repeated as much as possible. So when you forgive yourself, you hold the pain of it, you commit as much as possible to not harming again, and then you can forgive. And with other people, right? You feel the pain of it. You commit as much as possible to not letting yourself be harmed again. We don't want to forgive people and just have them like abuse us or, you know. No, no, no. And it's about, yeah, it's sort of about this idea of like creating a construct in which we are safe, right? And having enough compassion for ourselves, exactly. especially women who think like, oh, I'm just going to yeah. Pollyanna myself around and overgive. You know, I'm from the South. I'm from Louisiana. Yeah, exactly. so. <laughs> just let it go. And that's just the way men are, you know. <laughs> I, I, you know, if you, if you look at like the Me Too movement, a lot of what's what part of that came out of the fact that women were socialized, just like turn the other cheek. Well, that's just the way, you know, men are, um, you know, we just, just forgive, move on. Um, and by doing that, we are not being self-compassionate. Yeah. So it's important to recognize what's happening, to call it out, to commit to not letting ourselves be harmed at the same time. So this is why we need the integration of fierce and tender self-compassion. So we need to stand up for ourselves and draw boundaries, but with an open heart. And again, is again, what we're doing is the people, you know, men or whoever, or anyone, any perpetrator of injustice, yeah. they are still human beings worthy of compassion, but yes. their behaviors cannot be tolerated. You right. know? So, because so, if you start, if you look at like the great social justice leaders, people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., you know, Mother Teresa, they always made that distinction. You know, yeah. I'm going to stand up for justice, but I'm not going to cut anyone out of my heart because if you start doing that, then you're just contributing to the harm. Anytime yeah, you well, then we become righteous, right? Yeah, we can't dehumanize anyone. All human beings are worthy of compassion, ourselves and others. 
But our behaviors, as much as possible, we need to try to make our behaviors so that they aren't contributing to suffering. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, an interesting topic, and you touch on this in your work, is can we be fully, fully compassionate to others if we aren't compassionate to ourselves first? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. If you just look at it empirically, like the correlation, when I've, I've done this in my research between the level of compassion for ourselves and others, they actually aren't correlated. In other words, mm. there's a lot of people who are compassionate to others and not self-compassionate. And I would feel uncomfortable saying they aren't really compassionate or they aren't fully compassionate. There are a lot of really, truly, genuinely kind, compassionate people who are not compassionate to themselves. But here's the trick. They won't be able to sustain it. You will burn Mm. out. Your cup will run dry if you're this way, right? And so self-compassion, first of all, you know, when you train people to be more self-compassionate, they're able to be even more compassionate to others. Yeah, I was saying, what does it unlock? What does the self-compassion unlock? Because on the surface, there are many people who appear compassionate, but this is like this inner sort of key lock and key piece. Yeah, so it helps you, but but really what the research shows even more strongly is it helps prevent what they call compassion fatigue. It's really not the right word. It's really empathy fatigue. You know, when, yeah. you're, when you're stressed by other people's pain or you're an overgiver, you're going to become fatigued. And so that's one of the main things self-compassion gives you. It resources you to be able to give without burning out. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I would feel uncomfortable saying that people who are self-critical are not really compassionate to others. Many people are. So they, they just treat themselves and others just radically differently. So it's more about integrating the way you treat yourself and others. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so if in the world, and this is just sort of a philosophical question, and, and you're doing this right at, at with children with your through work, if we can teach children and we can teach ourselves to be more self-compassionate, what will we as a world accomplish? Yeah. So actually we've done more work with teens than we are with, than we have mm-hmm. with children. We're actually still working on, um, rolling out our self-compassion for children program. We did a lot of work for teens though. Could you imagine if you had had self-compassion as an adolescent? What a difference that would have made. Yeah, so so in terms of what it does is, one of the big things is really helping teens to understand that their worth doesn't come from being special and above average or from having to achieve that the sense of intrinsic worth Really, Because adolescence is so much about who am I? Am I a good person? Am I worthy? Am I popular? Am I attractive? Mm -hmm. All this stuff. That's really huge. Shifting that um, sense of focus away from the externals toward this intrinsic sense of worth. Um, It also does things, for instance, we've done a lot of um, work with um, teens who are, um, you know, not gender, who are gender alternative, either transgender or non-binary or also um, the LGBT. Um, TQ plus community. So just kind of that whole community, no matter mm-hmm. how people identify either sexual orientation or gender identity, who really have a time, hard time because it's hard for all adolescents to find their place in the world. But if you aren't, you know, normal, so to speak, in terms of your sexual orientation or you aren't cisgendered and you get bullied and you know what I mean? This, it just ugh, makes it so hard. And what we found is that it really helps having self-compassion. Right. Again, understanding that your worth is intrinsic. It doesn't matter what people think of you. You know, your worth is there anyway. Helps people stand up to bullying, not be so devastated by bullying, but mm-hmm. empowers youth. Um, and there's some research, this is really important. You know, so self compassion is the way we hold pain. And of course, if the pain's really bad. Sadly, some people think considered ending their lives as a way mm-hmm. to deal with the pain. One of the things self-compassion does is reduces suicidal ideation. Yeah. Give you another way to be with the pain, you know, other than just ending it that way. Yeah. It's hugely important, especially because, you know, suicide's a huge problem. Totally. No, I'm a child of suicide. My mom died by suicide when I was nine and I am a suicide prevention advocate. So I, you know, that's obviously dear and near to my heart. Yeah. But the idea too, is that if we are worthy, um, as a culture, if we feel that way and we can teach our children and yeah. others that we're all sort of worthy, no matter yeah. like, what does that do for us as a culture? Does that mean that we become less judgmental and then therefore just a greater sense of acceptance? Right. 
Yeah, well, I don't think we've, I don't think we've done that social experiment yet because most of us are so pretty. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> so at a, at a small level, I mean, in terms of a culture change, um, we taught self-compassion to a group of healthcare workers at a children's hospital. And hospitals are not a cult, not a self-compassion friendly culture. It's a yeah. culture of self-sacrifice. It's all about how many shifts did you work without sleeping? And, you know, it's all about helping others, helping the patient. And we actually created a culture shift. So instead of like the nurses and doctors kind of like, ah, how many shifts did you work? It's like, you need to take a break. You need to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. It actually changed the understanding that taking care of yourself actually enabled you to better take care of others. It helped you, you know, and that, so uh, it actually helped change the culture in a supportive way that even he didn't even take our training, started to be more self-compassionate. And we also know that, um, it's kind of contagious. If you model self-compassion yeah. for others, they think, oh, that's that's a good way to be with yourself. So um, it can make a culture shift. I mean, I so again, I don't know for sure what would happen. I could imagine what would happen is, yeah, people would be less competitive in terms of, you know, and again, that doesn't mean that you aren't going to try to win your sport or you aren't going to try to make the best product you can or, you know, you know, make a good living. But once the sense of self-worth is this is unattached to these things. Yeah. It's like you almost have this like plexiglass, right? So it's the ability to sort of actually not waste our precious finite energy on the self-sabotage part. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think we'd be just, if not more successful and, you know, we'd probably waste a lot less time. You know, we'd probably be more efficient at our jobs. Yeah, um, because we would be more compassionate and less violence because a lot of a lot of violence is driven by feelings of insecurity or like trying to like look at our political situation. Like each people identify with their party to the point where the other party is inhuman. Yeah. You know? And when other when other people are you can't get anything done. So we're kind of locked in this incredible dysfunction. So yeah. you could humanize yourself, the more you humanize yourself, you could you know hopefully humanize others. Um, but it, it is important. So compassion isn't just an inside job, right? So again, it's about including ourselves in the circle of compassion, but it's not about like, I'm going to be self-compassionate and sit on my cushion and love myself and just let the world go to yeah, hell. This is not the ostrich effect or like Pollyanna. Exactly. I think it's really yeah. important to, really important. to know. And that's why yeah. also I wrote this book, Fierce Self-Compassion. And I wrote it for women, partly because it was inspired by the Me Too movement. And um, just because the block is different for, for for people, by the way, so I'm not talking about sex or um, even gender identity. It's just socialization. Mm-hmm. People who are socialized as women or girls are taught to be tender toward others, not themselves. And they're taught not to be too fierce. People don't like you if you're too fierce. And people raised to be boys or men, they're taught not to be too tender. They can be fierce. That's okay. But if they're too tender, they're called names and bullied. Right. And um, so the book is written for women just, just because the blocks, you might say, to integration are different. Um, but this is how oppression happens. You know, mm-hmm. one class of people aren't allowed to be, you know, their their full authentic selves. And for women, it's kind of historically tied to, you know, just being mothers and children and taking care of everyone else's needs and not standing up for our own needs, not standing up when we're harassed, those types of things, not rocking the boat. It's a way also, it's part of the way that women have been oppressed. So as we you know, as all these social movements come up, that's these demands for social justice. These are acts of self-compassion. Yeah. Right? It comes from the desire to alleviate suffering and, you know, being willing to draw boundaries and saying it's not okay. And, you know, it's not okay for you to treat this way or other people this way. Um, yeah. So yeah. So it can be, it can be kind of inactive. I mean, sort of ferocity, right? There's, there's a lot of yes. sort of courage bravery. and bravery. Yeah, and it's, not, it's not like aggression. Yeah. Again, that's why we need to integrate the tender. Other people are still human beings, but it's brave. It's courageous. It's being willing to speak up, willing to stand up for human rights. It's not like selfish. It's like, okay, we're going to protect human rights because all people are worthy of being treated fairly and justly, kindly. Yeah. No, I love that because it's like this idea that like, I can disagree with you, but yeah. I can still hold you in, you know, hold As space a, for you're you. Still a human being. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's so important. It, it doesn't even almost exist in our current, not in the U S at least. It's so sad, but it's true. It's, um, yeah. 
Yeah. So a- you talk about parenting in your work, and I just want to make sure that we we touch on this because it's so important. So many people listening, obviously, are parents. If we want to start teaching self compassion and not self esteem, which uh, which is a different thing to our children at home. What's the smallest step we can take to do that? Yeah. So um, first of all, as parents, the best way to teach your children self-compassion is to practice self-compassion and to model. Mm, Lead by example. Yeah. And this works a couple of different ways. And one, first of all, as a parent, I can tell you, it will help you be a better parent because you're going to make mistakes as a parent. And it will help resource you. And if you're supportive and encouraging towards yourself when you make mistakes, you'll be more able to correct them. Um, but also, especially what happens is, um, so for my son, for instance, he, he's autistic. Um, and although he has autistic people have some trouble perspective taking, but they're actually very empathic as part mm-hmm. one of the reasons they shut down. Um, but so parents and kids, there's a lot of mutual empathy, right? They, they're aware of our moods, regardless of what we say, just like we're aware of their moods, regardless of what they say. This is the human brain is built for empathy. So what you cultivate inside is actually communicated to other people, even if you don't say anything. <laughs> you may try to hide it. Some people are better <laughs> not hiding it. Some people are better yeah. than others. Yeah, yes. Resonate with the other people's internal mind states. That's how the human brain works, and especially parents and children, because we're so close. So if you're like frustrated and self-judgmental and angry or anxious, that's kind of what your kids are resonating with, right? Mm. But if you're kind, supportive, warm with yourself, that's what your kids are resonating with. And what I used to do, because, you know, my son, when he was younger, um, he'd have a hard time regulating his emotions. All, all kids do, but especially because of the autism. So I would actually help to regulate his emotions by regulating my own reactions to his emotions. Mm-hmm. He'd have a tantrum. You know, I would focus on, of course, I would try to help him, but I would actually focus on myself, trying to be, you know, this is really hard. I don't know what to do. You know, it's okay. I'm here for myself. And I would get calm and soothe myself, which actually helped my son calm down. And then, of course, I, I would also try to teach him explicitly, you know, skills of self-compassion. He's actually pretty self-critical. Didn't learn it from me. That's just the old threat defense system. He thought right. he, could, he watched cartoon bullies and thought he could bully himself and they're not making mistakes. So it's, it is a national behavior. It's not just learned. Um, over over time, he's 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 20, uh, 20 now. He's learned. Oh, wow. He, he's he's learned to be much more self compassionate. But it took it took a while. So modeling it out loud. So for instance, if you break a glass or you make some mistake, it's a perfect opportunity to model self compassion. Oh, I love that glass. Oh, I'm sad. Well, it's okay. These things happen. It's only human. You know how can I how can I help repair the situation? Right. So just little little things like that. If you say, oh, I'm such an idiot in front of your kid, that's what you're modeling for that kid. Yeah. If you think it, it's better than saying it out loud, but they're still kind of picking up on it, you know, through <laughs> their mirror neurons. So really, yeah. um, but another thing is uh when your kids are learning about friendship, you know, which happens around seven, seven, mm. make sure you also include the idea that you need to be a good friend to yourself. It's not just a good friend to others. We also need to be a good friend to ourselves. And you can say, would you say that to your friend? You know, is it, what would you say to your friend? And so as they're learning about friendship with others, they can also learn about friendship with themselves. And this is important for adults too, everyone. For adults too. <laughs> friendship exactly. with ourselves. Friendship yes. with ourselves. Yeah. And so Kristen, in, you know, as we go to close, so I want, I definitely want you to let us know how can people, if they want to incorporate your work into schools, because this I think is where you already have changed the world, but can change the world even more by people understanding how they can bring your work into potentially schools for teens or groups for yeah. teens. Yeah. So we have a program called Mindful Self-Compassion for Teens. Um, okay. it's not, it's, it's, some people are doing it in the schools. It tends to be more like an after-school activity now. Okay teach it online. And we're actually working on a program to get in the schools for children. Um, unfortunately, teachers are already so overburdened and, you know, there's so many reasons why it's hard to get into school. So I, I don't think you need to wait for that. It'd be great if you can right. incorporate it. Just more if you're an individual teacher or a parent, you can just start dropping this in. You're like, yeah. I used to teach a college course of self-compassion that I can't tell you how many people said it was the most important class they ever took at at the university. You should go back and teach it. But if people want to find this course for children, where can they find it? Okay. So um, the the best place to find courses at the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, you can Google that that, or it's the centerformsc.org. 
You can also go to my website, just Google self-compassion, selfcompassion.org. Um, I have a lot of resources there. You can take, you can test your own self-compassion level. There's research, there's guided practices, and there's also a link to the Center, Center for Mindful Self-Compassion there. Um, so now training, so much of the training is online. So it's very easy to access no matter where in the world you are. There also might be a, a trained mindful self-compassion teacher in your area who teaches a live course. It's not happening as much after the pandemic as it used to, but it still goes on. So there's a lot of training resources. Also, just picking up a copy of the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. You know, you can read through it and just, you know, try out a couple of the exercises with your kids or your classes or, you know, other people. Again, there's been a lot of work done on how to do this. It's not just a good idea. It's a practice. And there's been a lot of practices developed to, again, empirically supported to help you develop this new habit. Yes, it's a habit. And just so I want everyone to know that when when I learned this, it was completely life-changing and I could not help other people for a living if I didn't learn this first. It was like, it it unlocked something else in me. Um, and, and, And I just want everyone to know that this is definitely a habit worth practicing and I believe can change the world. Um, so because, you know, through that compassion, we can then learn to be, you know, re- with without boundaries, compassionate for others, which is, which is how we have, you know, life, life and world change. That's right. Yeah. We're all part of a larger whole and not, not just people, you know, the planet as well. <laughs> of course, of course, how we yeah. treat everything. Right. Exactly. And so Dr. Neff, thank you so much for being here. It's been such an honor and please join us next week, everyone for another powerful habit that can change your life. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, discover how to find your new happy place.